In the last episode of the podcast, we asked the question, what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition? And we spoke to a sports dietitian who also works in life cycle assessment to quantify the environmental impact of our food choices. But how do these choices translate into reality for athletes? Today, we're joined by British writer and ultra trail runner Damien Hall, who shares his own personal journey to discovering the environmental impact of his running, including the nutrition aspect. Damien shares his thoughts on the environmental impact of sports nutrition, particularly things like what do people overestimate and underestimate about it? And most importantly, what can we all do to reduce the environmental impact of the sport that we love? Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. The sort of stuff you're talking about out on your run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to find answers for. So we'll take that question and break it down, inviting a guest expert in our A episode and an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their perspective as well. Today, it's episode 59B, what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition with ultra trail runner, Damien Hall. But before we get to Damien, how are you going this week, Steph? I'm going good, Al. The last couple of weeks has been a bit crazy with the the sports going on. Um, And, yeah, I got stuck back into watching the Western States and I'm sure many of our listeners will know that Courtney DeWalter killed the course record by 78 minutes in a time of 59.29.33 and there was a good race going on with Tom Evans as well. So he's actually the first Brit to, to win the race and now I'm getting stuck into watching the tour while I'm attempting to to watch it hour after watching that Netflix series but I must admit I'm pretty terrible at staying awake and so then I tend to watch the highlights you know the next morning but I'm really really enjoying that and then shout out to our um, guest that we've had on the podcast a couple times now, our Kelly Angel, also known as Emerson. She had a brilliant race in Lavaretto Ultra Trail, the 80K, that's in Italy. She came second and came 24th overall for that event. So, yeah, that was a pretty amazing race for, for Kelly. And then also we've got the Gold Coast Marathon that's just been this weekend as well. And Ellie's just coming back, Ellie Pashley. She came third in the Gold Coast Half Marathon. So, yeah, and then what have you been watching, Al? You've been getting stuck into the tour, I know. Yeah, tour a little bit. The Ashes on with the cricket a little bit. That's right. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's all been happening. I think at one stage I had three different things on three different screens the other <laughs> night over the weekend. But, yeah, it's that time of year, isn't it? Summer in Europe and there's all those amazing events happening. So, yeah, chance to watch all of those. It's been great. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And how are you going with your study recruitment as well? I know, you know, that's starting to, to happen. 
very slowly, unfortunately. Um, it seems to be a theme at the moment, just talking to the other people in the lab. So if you are a, a runner or a triathlete in Melbourne and you're interested in being involved in some research, we'd love to have you. I know a few people said, oh, maybe after Gold Coast, which has now just been. So, yeah, hopefully we'll get a few more takers. But, yeah, there's a couple of, couple of different studies going on at Monash at the moment. We'd certainly love to hear from you. So you can check out our social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and the details uh, for the study I'm recruiting for are up there as well. But you can also contact us via that for any of the other studies and we can put you in touch with the relevant people. Yeah, and I guess just to let listeners know that don't associate our with just having studies where you have to run for five hours. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've dramatically reduced the, the length that they have to run for this one. It's about half of that. Half, half of that, yeah. So he's yeah. being much kinder nowadays. Um, <laughs> the five-hour study was unusual let's be fair <laughs> very unusual so just a reminder if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast you can find us on social media at the long munch on facebook twitter or instagram but today's episode out episode 59b yeah so continuing on from last episode so our topic is what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition and our guest, as I said before, is Damien Hall. So Damien is a professional ultra trail runner and coach who has competed in some of the biggest races in the sport, and we'll talk to him about some of those shortly. Uh, earlier this year, he won the Montane Winter Spine Race, which is a 268-mile nonstop race across the Pennine Way in northern England in the middle of winter, so a fair bit of snow around usually in that race as well. So pretty harsh conditions. He's also most recently competed in the Barkley Marathons and trail runners will know about this event. It's got a real cult-like following and Damien will talk about that in this interview and we forgot to talk about it in the interview, but if you want more information about the Barkley Marathons, you can look up. There's a great documentary called The Barkley Marathons, The Race That Eats Its Young which I think was back in 2012 they made that, but really great introduction to what that event is all about and the, the interesting and fascinating characters that are involved with that event as well. Damien's also a journalist by background and he's written for Runner's World, Trail Running, irunfar.com and Lonely Planet amongst others. He actually started off as a football journalist and when I say football, I mean soccer. Obviously, he's, he's British. And then he went into sort of travel writing and then more into to writing about hiking and trekking and then into running. So he sort of made that, that journey over the last sort of 10, 15 years. He's authored several books as well, initially around soccer and travel um, and then around walking and hiking, but most recently trail running. And so he's had two books around trail running in 2021. He wrote a book called In It for the Long Run, which is a bestseller. And then most recently in late 2022, he released a book called We Can't Run Away From This, which looks at the environmental impact of running as a sport. And so it's this most recent book and particularly, I guess, his journey to discover the environmental impacts of running that we're going to be discussing in this chat. Now, if you're wondering, no, Damien didn't request to come on. This has nothing to do with promotion for his book or anything like that. I actually came across Damien. Uh, we had an interaction or he interacted with something I'd posted on Twitter about 12 months ago or so. And it, I just sort of saw his name come up and thought, oh, he's interested in environmental issues. And his book actually hadn't come out at that stage, but I was aware that he was working on a book around the environmental impacts of running. So I thought, oh, this is someone who's obviously really passionate about the environment and the impacts that running has on the environment. So he'd be a great person to get on the podcast. And 
So because we were waiting for Alba, who was on maternity leave, we sort of waited this period of time for Damien as well, which has kind of been nice in a way because his book is now published. He can talk about the, you know, the contents of it and he's had feedback and time to reflect on that as well. Now, Damien is also a founding member of the Green Runners, which is an international organization where runners sign up and pledge to minimize their environmental impact. And they have four pillars. One is around how they travel to events. One is around their clothing and equipment. One is around their diet. Obviously, we'll talk about that today. And one is how they spread the message around reducing the environmental impact of running to other runners. So Damien shares with us what he discovered about the environmental impact of his diet, both day-to-day and race nutrition specifically, what changes this prompted in his own personal life, and whether he noticed any differences in his running performance as a result of those changes. We also briefly discussed some of the other environmental impacts that running can have on the environment and how this has changed his approach to the sport as a whole. And this includes things like event travel, clothing and equipment, and the role also of individuals versus system change on our environment. Now, one term I thought we'd just explain before we get into this chat, because I don't think we explained it along the way, is this term called CO2E that people might have heard of before, or CO2 CO2 equivalence, that's what the E stands for. So basically, it's a measure that looks at the warming impact of all the different greenhouse gases standardized to their equivalent impact to CO2, carbon dioxide. So for example, one tonne of methane is about 28 times more potent on global warming than one tonne of CO2 over the 100 years after it's been released into the atmosphere. So methane therefore has a CO2e of 28 per tonne compared to CO2, which would be one CO2e per tonne. There are other greenhouse gases as well beyond CO2 and methane, things like nitrous oxide, for example, and each of those has its own CO2e value, which is then added into the calculations when we look at what are the CO2 equivalents of particular processes or production of things, including in this case, food. Mm, Yep. Interesting. Let's get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it. Damien Hall, welcome to The Long Munch. How are you going over there in the UK? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Excellent. Now, you're a professional ultra trail runner. You have been for a while now, and you've competed in some of the biggest events in the sport, just to name a few, I guess, the multi-day Tour de Gion, which is in the Italian Alps. There's the Montaigne Winter Spine Race in the UK, which you won back in January this year. Congrats. There's races like Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, UTMB, which obviously the trail runners will very much know. It's kind of, I guess, most people would see as the pinnacle of the sport, but for the non-trail runners may not know of it. And most recently, the Barkley Marathons in the US, which is almost a mythical event amongst trail runners, I think. And we'll describe that in a minute for the non-trail runners, because there's a great story behind that event. But I guess the first question is, how did that journey go for you from being sort of someone who does some sort of recreational running like many of us? into more the the serious side of the sport? Well, I still can't work out whether it was sort of, you know, a little bit of a happy accident or, or whether I was always going to go that way. It does involve Australia a, a bit, actually. I was living down there for uh, nearly nearly a decade. I've got I've got an Australian passport, which which gets hidden away when the ashes are on. But <laughs> I when I was in Australia and when I was traveling around New Zealand and Latin America, I just, I really loved long distance walking, you know, trekking multi-day multi-day treks, especially out in the, out in the Blue Mountains when I was living in Sydney and so on. And I also played a lot of football. And I can see now that sort of 
ultra running is almost a combination of the two in that the main, you know, I do like to be competitive and that's where the sports, the football side of it comes or, or intervals as I now see what football was. But also, but really for me, it's about big days out in beautiful places, ideally with a few lumps in them. So I, I just had no idea people really ran these trails. But as, as yeah, as, when I did find out, I was like, wow, I, you know, I really want to try this. Obviously, people go for several days, you know, without stopping. And, and, and you know, we're still hiking the uphills most of the time, aren't we? But, but, but you know, you jog the flats, jog the downs. And it was a revelation that people did that on the same hiking trails that I was hiking. And I've literally, you mentioned the spine race, I'd literally hiked the Pennine Way. And then a couple of years later, there was a race on the Pennine Way. I was like, wow, you know, oh, you could run this. I guess, I guess one of the key moments was, yeah, 2011, I signed up for a local half marathon. I'd only just moved back to Britain. Did the Bath Half, which is quite a big event here, and 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 yeah, loved that, loved loved the training. I think as much as as much as the race itself. But then yeah, was really keen to see how much further I could go. So you know, did a marathon, did an ultra marathon, and and when I did that, I was just like, this is this is for me. Yeah, this is this is going to be my thing. Yeah. Awesome. And so I mentioned before the Barclay Marathons, and as, as I said, you know, listeners who are trail runners are probably very familiar with this event. But for other listeners, can you give us the quick sort of one or two minute overview of what this event is and why it's got this sort of cult-like following? Yeah, it's, 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 it could be the most, the most unique race in the world, really, couldn't it? I mean, firstly, there's no, there's no website. Getting, getting into it is a, is a secret that I'm very fortunate to, you know, very fortunate that that came my way. Only 40 people can do it each year. The park in, in Tennessee, Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee, can only take so many people. It's, you know, only a small amount of people. So it is quite exclusive, sadly. But that kind of adds to the allure. And finally, yeah, finally I got, I got in this year. And it's, it's yeah, it's been going since the mid-80s and only only 17 people have ever, ever finished it. And it's a loop of about 26 miles with about 13 a uh, thousand foot of, of climb and and on that loop it's not marked you have to find some books in some woods to prove that you got to those to prove you followed the course and you rip up a page out of the book to correspond with your your race number it's very steep it's i actually had brilliant weather but normally the weather can be very very changeable i would say mm. very steep and then it's very very tiring the fastest no one's ever done a loop i don't think faster than eight hours so an eight-hour mar- trail marathon, basically, that's the fastest it ever gets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, very steep, as I say. And then, and then, yeah, you go through the night, and and you you go once you've got used to it, you go anti-clockwise, you go the other way to to sort of throw you off. And I, what I found was it was the mental side of it was hardest because usually in a long trail race you can switch off to an extent and follow the markings and and yeah, just daydream and have a great time. In this, you have to be alert all the time to to make sure you're on course. And that's really hard. And and also the cutoffs. I'm not used to caring about the cutoffs. I'm very lucky. But in this one, you have to be, you know, the time is you're racing the clock all the time. So that mental, that mm. mental sort of stress. Yeah. But bowls, bowls most of us over at some point, which it did did me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Is the entry fee still a license plate? Has that changed? Uh yeah, yeah. If if it's your first time, if you're a virgin, you bring a license plate. And the actual fee, I think, is one dollar, one dollar sixty, I think. There was a good rationale why it's $1.60. I can't quite remember at the moment, but uh, yeah, it's, it's cheap. It's very cheap. It's very good value for money if you can find out how to yeah. get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing I love about the event is, and I think this hasn't changed, is yeah, the race can start anywhere between midnight and basically daybreak. And so everyone goes to sleep and then the organizer, Larry, just decides and gets out his conch shell and gives it a blow. And then you've got 20 minutes to get ready, basically. 
and then it starts when he lights his cigarette. Yeah. So you go, there are lots of little things like that around the race just to mess with your mind a bit, really, such as part of the application process. There is like a written exam. He never tells <laughs> you the results of it. So, but the exam is really left field questions. Some of them, there's no correct answer. And, and he just loves the idea yeah. that he's playing. You know, one of them, it was a puzzle. It took me two hours and I realized there was no, you could not do what was suggested in this, in this puzzle. <laughs> and, and, and that just encapsulates it really that, that, yeah, he wants you to, yeah, he wants to mess with your mind a bit and, and yeah, problem solving, I suppose as well. But yeah, there are lots of little things like that. It's, it's, it's great fun. You've got to, you've got to be relaxed about it. If you're uptight and stressed about what's going to happen when it's, it's going to mess with your mind a bit more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, today's topic is around the environmental aspect of our nutrition choices as runners, cyclists, and triathletes. And you've actually written a book specifically on the environmental impact of running, which had a huge amount of research, I imagine, that went into it. And I believe you're a journalist by trade, and you've done a lot of writing for Runners World, Athletics Weekly, other publications. So I guess the first question is, I guess, your research into the environmental impact of running did that start off with sort of a question as a journalist, oh, I'm going to go and research this to write a book? Or was it more a personal journey of wanting to know about this that ended up with the book sort of almost as a byproduct of that? Yeah, again, it might have been a bit of both. I didn't, I didn't kind of think, so, so I think it was like 2019 where I, I don't know how well known they are in Australia, but we have a group here called Extinction Rebellion who are, who are raising awareness and, and trying to pressure the government you know, to act, to act now and, and make these, you know, vital, vital changes we need to slow climate breakdown. So in 2019, they did some really effective protests in London that really caught our attention. They brought London to a standstill. And I, I guess I've always leaned that way anyway. And I'm, I'm from the part of the country where they where they sort of originated and so on. But I was a bit like, oh, is it really that urgent? And then you look at, look at it and, and you're like, oh gosh, it's, it's, it's frighteningly urgent. And I, I don't know how much coverage it's getting down there but yeah the, the 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 rise in the sea temperatures we've got just off the coast of england and ireland today as we talk in late june are unprecedented and uh, along with yeah the lack of ice in, in the antarctic and, and things like that and the, the wildfires we've just seen in in canada and, and i know you obviously had horrendous wildfires down there so yeah it's all very i realized it was more alarming than than most of the media was saying and most of the governments were saying so i joined in some protests but then i suppose i started to think of myself as an athlete you know, my role and, and, and yeah, I was probably flying three times a year, you know, getting my new kit and posting on Instagram, uh, wasn't, wasn't giving any real thought to my diet other than, well, other than, yeah, trying to, trying to be a fairly healthy athlete, I suppose. And I mean, this gets to the heart of, we're already hinting at the, the big debate in the middle of a lot of this, which is like, how much do individual changes matter versus nudging for system change? You know, to me, ultimately, mm. I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about some personal choices, but to me. I don't really mind if someone eats a beef burger every day and flies three times a year. If, if they'll come and join us in protests and, and vote certain ways in, in, in elections and, and, you know, get chatting to your local MP, you know, push, Trump push for system change that way. To me, that's more important. But it is all linked mm. with personal changes too. And I felt I had to make some, we mentioned the Barclay, that's the only time I've flown since. So I've only done one flight in four years now. And then I, yeah, we're, we're here mostly to talk about diet and over a little period of time, I decided, yeah, I was going to sort of turn vegan because I couldn't sort of, I don't know, I couldn't really, especially beef and lamb, I just couldn't sort of eat them anymore <laughs> when I realized how mm. bad they were environmentally. I'm not, not meaning to point fingers at anyone else or, or preach anywhere else. I just felt I couldn't, 
couldn't carry on eating that way. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what started. And then and then what happened was, I suppose it was a. I would talk about some of these things on social media as I went along, as I was exploring. And, and, and it's, it was difficult at first to work out. Like, for example, I did some record attempts where I was like, right, there'll be no plastic waste. I'm going to try and buy all my nutrition without any plastic waste, which was actually really difficult. But actually, that wasn't as important as, I suppose, how many car journeys might be involved from like a big team supporting me and stuff like that. And I didn't necessarily know, like it was hard to find out. And then, but some other interesting things happened. Like I thought, well, why don't I just, I'll pick up litter as I go. Like, that's a nice thing to do. That's easy. And actually, that's a pretty trivial thing to do in a way. Not, it's not pointless, but in terms of the things you can do, recycling and picking up litter, they're minimal, minimal impact, really. But actually, when I had successful record attempts, when I was interviewed by the media, they loved that. You know, they didn't want to hear about necessarily the, the, uh, the veganism or the, you know, trying to reduce emissions from the car journeys, but they loved the litter picking, whether that was sort of mm. naivety or almost a, a deliberate political thing, I don't know. But, but that would get the conversation going, and then I could talk about wider issues. So, yeah, it was a big experiment and exploration of, of my own footprint or an athlete's footprint or even running's footprint. And during that time, I'd, I'd already written one book for a publisher, called, uh, a publisher here called Vertebrate Publishing. And, and they really encouraged me, I suppose. It was, it was, if I'm honest, it was Kirsty Reed, my publisher. It was her idea to, to sort of go, well, why don't we do something on this? This feels important. This feels timely. Let's look at the, almost the footprint from running. You know, where are the good and bad points? So they encouraged me mm. a lot. Yeah, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of how it came around. Yeah, cool. All right. And the book is called We Can't Run Away From This and was published last year. So sort of the back half of 2022. And as you said, it kind of looks at the different ways in which participating in running impacts on the environment. And more importantly, I think what's really great about the book is the what can we do about it part, not just, you know, this is bad or this isn't bad or whatever, but you know, what are the steps that we can actually take from a practical perspective? Before we get into that, though, I guess the first chapter and the thing that really hits you, you know, starts off the very first sentence of the very first chapter is the thing we love doing is surprisingly shit for the planet. You then go on to introduce the term the big kerfuffle fuck, which you refer back to throughout the book. So do you want to describe for the listeners what you mean by the big kerfuffle fuck and <laughs> Is this a term you came up with? Is this a term you borrowed from someone else that we need to give them credit for? It's certainly not one I'd come across. <laughs> I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim at least half, if not most of the credit for that word. I did hear, we've got a guy here, Dale Vince, who's, a, who's an outspoken renewable energy entrepreneur and, and, a, and a vegan and a football club owner of Forest Green Rovers. And he talks about the, I think he calls it the climate, excuse my language. Yeah, I think he calls it the climate clusterfuck. Um, which is yeah. a bit more, maybe a bit more aggressive. We have, you know, the British, I, I find something big and scary if you sort of put a slightly friendly, cuddly word on it. I'm, you know, it's not <laughs> as scary, which may be counterproductive because yeah. we don't get scared. But I, the big kerfuffle fuck to me is, yeah, both scary and hopefully a tiny bit more friendly and then we don't get too intimidated by it and we can hopefully tackle it a bit. So I'll claim half the credit for that. And um, yeah, our global situation, I suppose. But also it feels like things like global warming, climate change, those words have been around, those phrases have been around a while and, and maybe it lost some, lost some potency, actually. People now team, seem to say sort of climate breakdown, which sounds, you know, which we may be in and which sounds a bit more alarming. I try and say that now instead of, instead of you know, warming is a bit gentle, isn't it? And, and change, you know, I don't, I don't know if those, those phrases are quite the right ones anymore. But mm. yeah, cl- climate, fuck, I haven't seen that on used by CNN or the, or the Times yet, but, or the BBC, but let, let's hope, let's hope. Yes, get it trademarked in there first. (laughs) (laughs) 
So in the book, you discuss a number of ways in which running can negatively impact the environment, but you conclude by saying there's really three big areas that we can and should pay attention to in terms of our own impact. So that's kit and clothing, travel and dietary choices. Being a nutrition podcast, we'll focus mostly on the dietary choices today, but we'll also touch briefly on the others um, near the end. So to start off with, when you started to look at the impact of dietary choices on the environment, did you have any kind of preconceived ideas about what you'd find? It's definitely surprised me. Um it's definitely surprised me. I guess, firstly, the, the, the impact, when you look at the global situation, how, where the emissions come from, how much comes from food or, or agriculture um, was shocking. And we think it's at least a quarter, don't we, I believe, maybe even close to a third, if I remember. I do, I do sometimes forget all the stats. I've got them, got them in the book, but um, it's a huge amount. And yeah, things like flying and, and fossil fuels get talked about a lot, and rightly so, and that's the biggest part of it. But the second biggest part of it is, is emissions from food product, food, food and not just food production, but, you know, producing food. And that, yeah, that was, that was surprising to me. And then there's a brilliant, there's a four-year study by Oxford University. You can go and see it live. It's ourworldindata.org. And, and when I found that and it showed, I mean, how bad beef is compared to almost everything else. For example, it takes, you know, to produce one kilogram of beef, we release 99.5 kilograms of co2 or co2e i mean that's just stunning you know the, the amount of emissions that happen you know just so someone can have a kilogram of beef and yeah beef beef and, and, and farming has has numerous issues but that that was that was yeah shocking so i sort of my first thing was like well i can't really have beef and then lamb's the next worst all right i'm going to give those two up for, for a while but that kind of that felt a bit unsatisfactory just to give those two up it didn't feel like a strong enough gesture but but yeah the, the, it's probably those things the overall emissions how bad beef is. And then thirdly, I suppose, the unfortunately, that it's a bit of a myth, like eating locally is, is the way to go. Like in some cases, yes, that's true. But in quite a lot of cases, it's not necessarily. And that was surprising and disappointing too. And again, that's backed up by this study. And then I suppose very much tapped into that. Yeah, it, often the, the packaging and the travel emissions from, from our food aren't nearly as significant as as depending on what the food is, but aren't as big a factor as we think. So in Britain, we often think, oh, that avocado's come from there. That's terrible. I'll buy the local beef burger. But that beef burger mm. is, has caused more harm environmentally, sadly, than, than, than the avocado in most cases. Well, or I think maybe every case. So yeah, those, those are probably the big things that, that surprised me. And so was it easy or difficult to find information about this topic? I would say there's def definitely one, I forget which book it is now. I think it's The Joyful Environmentalist, which I do quote in my book. It's by a journalist. And, and she sort of says, no one's, you know, no one's talking about this. It doesn't come up on websites much that, that, that red meat or beef uh, or, and, and, and dairy as well are a big, such a big part of the problem. And, and certainly our government was coming out with fresh guidelines recently and, and it was leaked out that they were going to say, we've got to cut red meat. And then they cut that. And, that, and when, it, when the report actually came out, that was out. That wasn't in the report. So I think because that's such a popular thing that people do, there's a real reluctance to sort of 
say, look, everyone, we've got to have less beef burgers. There does seem to be a deliberate sort of, we can't uns unsettle people too much. And I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, I do joke in the book that, you know, I'm not a vegan, I'm an annoying vegan because, you know, <laughs> vegans can be quite annoying. And I already thought that before I was one. So I don't mean to be, you know, I don't want to be too annoying. I'm okay being a bit annoying, but yeah, it doesn't seem to get as mentioned. I did a talk as well about a year ago now. And I remember it was exactly about this, you know, the impacts of running. And when I got to the dietary page, the sort of dietary slide, there was a cheer at the back of the room. And, and I spoke to that guy afterwards and said, why did, why did you cheer? And he said, because people don't, people don't talk about that. So, so it is a bit, people are a bit nervous about talking about it. But then I would say this, you know, this isn't the only resource, but this Our World in Data study is really illuminating. And, and a, you know, it's four four year study. It's thorough. I mean, no study is beyond criticism, is it? No study is totally perfect, but it was mm. a big breakthrough study. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking at it now because there's some brilliant graphs that really, you know, really illustrate all the emissions from food around the world. And of course there will be, you know, I've got friends who, you know, don't, don't like some of this parts of the study and, and point out things about farming locally and sustainable farming, which may be, may be fair. But yeah, when I found the study, that was a great, that was a great help. Um, mm. Yeah. 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 And we spoke to Alba last week, our, our previous guest and yeah, she works with a company that does all this kind of life, life cycle assessment of food and agriculture and, you know, her, her findings in her PhD around sports nutrition, but also in, in general from, from her work there is, is very much in alignment with, with what you found. And we actually came across a, another study that was published from Oxford that was published just late last year, actually, that pretty much came to the same conclusion as well. Okay, good, mm. good. Yeah. Because yeah. I yeah. sometimes get, I on social media, I, I try not to, I try, I, well, I've taken a pledge with the green runners to, you know, to be annoying because it's all a bit late in the day. This is getting very urgent. At the same time, I try not to bang on about the same things all the time. But it, it is funny on, yeah. on social media, which isn't always a great place to, <laughs> to debate these things, especially food. People are incredibly tribal about food. And I guess I am tribal mm. now because I've turned vegan, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't tribal and I wasn't vegan. And people often say, oh, well, you found that research because you're vegan and it's backed up what you've what you believe already, but it, it's not, that's the other way around. I wasn't, I didn't have a skin mm. in the game. Uh, and then I found this research and was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's the other way around for, for me. Yeah. Yep. And so in the book, you mentioned that often the public have these misconceptions about what impact certain things have on the environment. So we tend to overestimate the benefit of some things like you mentioned, recycling, turning off the lights and we kind of underestimate the benefit of others like perhaps air travel so when it comes to nutrition and this includes food choices food packaging composting recycling etc what are the areas that you feel people overestimate the benefits of and I guess that we underestimate the benefits of the number one would would be that sort of local food is best. It totally depends yeah. what what that food is. So so for example, if tomatoes are grown, say in Britain, in maybe tomatoes is not a great one, but yeah, if food grown out of season locally will will have used it loads of extra energy to to heat and light, perhaps a big a greenhouse or some or similar. So that that's not that's not great. And actually, a lot of food, hardly any food, is actually flown. At least, at least in Europe, or at least to Britain, and we, you can check the people can check this out with with Mike Berners Lee's books. He's a he's a professor from Lancaster University. He's got two brilliant books. How, how bad are bananas? Um, thankfully, they're not they're not that bad, and there is no planet B. And he looks at all the, all of this in detail in, in both of those. And yeah, not much food is flown. Nearly always, it's on freight. 
sorry, you had huge, huge ships where you can carry lots and lots of things. So, so actually it's uh, relatively okay-ish in terms of the travel emissions. So if things are flown, so I believe in Britain, say we do sometimes get asparagus from Peru. Apparently that's not, you know, that's not going to be great. So, you know, avoid that if you can, but, but most vegetables aren't, aren't flown here. They're, they they come on a ship. Yeah, shipping could be improved, of course, but but usually that's a tiny, you know, that, that's not so bad. So beef is, you know, beef and red meat are, are so bad. And part of that's the methane that's being released. But also often it's the, the feed for the animals. This just applies more to say chicken, I believe. But the feed for the animals is often linked to deforestation. So it can be that hopefully people know about the Amazon and, and any beef from Brazil or the Amazon is usually terrible, usually linked to deforestation. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the biggest factors you know that's getting into trouble at the moment is this rapid deforestation thankfully change of government in brazil things are improving but until recently it was it was escalating it was terrible but yeah lots of lots of forests are chopped down to create feed for the animals they're fed and fed and fed and then we eat those animals and usually they've had so many more calories and emissions have gone into feeding them than we'll get from the animal if you if you if hopefully i've explained that well which is kind of infuriating and that land was often used to make soy, you know, soy or soya, which we could have eaten um, ourselves. And that would have been so, so fewer emissions overall. I appreciate there'll be people listening going, you know, yuck, I want my chicken or my beef. And, and I, I don't think anyone's saying realistically, we're going to get rid of chicken and beef from the world, that, that you know, that's going to be one, would be one hell of a fight, but we probably just all have to eat less of it. But yeah, that mm. local, the travel emissions. And then I suppose in sports nutrition, I, I was definitely getting frustrated with all the plastic. You know, our plastic gels, the Coke bottles, all the, all, all the sweets and crisps. And I, I found it quite difficult to sort of situate the plastic waste in this whole global mess. How bad, is, how bad is plastic? You know, now we know there's a plastic crisis going on around the world. You know, we see these horrifying images of, of you know, washing up in oceans or, you know, in the Pacific, these massive, I forget what they're called now, but these massive islands. Garbage patch. Yes, yes, that's it. These huge, mm. they're, they're becoming epic, you know, and it's horrifying and, and largely out of view to most of us. So, so plastic's definitely a problem, but it, with food, it's not usually one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest issues, if you see what I mean. So I was listening to a scientist talk about this and he kind of said, if you've gone to the supermarket and, you know, you've not used a plastic bag, you know, you've taken your own bag or, or your, I don't know what you call them down there, but your sort of like bag for life, we call them here. Mm. But then you've bought a couple of beef steaks you know, that's actually the wrong, the kind of the wrong way around. You, you, you might feel, oh, I didn't use a plastic bag, but I bought some, mm. you know, two kilograms of beef. That beef was far more harmful. I'm not, I'm not pro-plastic, don't get me wrong, but that was far more harmful than, than the packaging, the way, you know, in an ideal world, of course, we do, we do both. We cut down on beef, we cut down on plastic waste. Um, so, yeah, those, those are probably the, the main things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, as Al said, we spoke to Dr. Alba, I won't even attempt her last name, in our last episode, and she's done a PhD on this topic, which is in sports nutrition. She concluded that, in fact, it's the big kind of day-to-day choices, especially around the protein sources, so animal versus plant, that makes the biggest difference. It sounds like that may be what you kind of come to the conclusion with. Yeah, no, I've got I've got this nice graph in front of me. Well, not not nice graph, and and yeah, yeah, beef by far the worst. Then it's lamb and mutton. Then it's beef from a dairy herd. So I, I, I and then prawns, cheese. So so far, all of these are protein. Pig, poultry, eggs, and then the the first one on the list that isn't 
you know, in that category is, is rice. But by now we're talking rice for a kilogram of rice is like 4.45 kilograms of emissions versus 99.5 kilograms for, for beef kind of thing. So, and then milk, yeah, milk is, is dairy milk is surprisingly, surprisingly bad too. So yeah, it, it does come down to protein for the runner. And of course, runners are encouraged to eat a bit more protein than we might normally. Although there's this whole debate of sort of Western societies and, and rich societies are often eating more protein than they need to. So yeah, we're probably, this is where you, you learn that this whole global crisis is underpinned by just simply an overconsumption crisis. You know, it's kind of too much flights, too much too much protein, probably too many, well, kind of too much everything, you know, too much driving, too much and too much protein. So it's, it was more difficult to calculate this in terms of what a runner, because obviously we're eating all day and, and we're not running all day. So how much of that diet, how much of our calories is contributing to the to the running or the recovery? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, that was a difficult one. Um, is it I don't know, 30% of our, of our intake? I'm not sure. But yeah, it's still... We, we, we could easily be having an oversized impact as a runner from uh, in the dietary side of side of things. Mm. I think one of the things that we talked about with Alba, uh, I guess, is for those people who, as you said, you know, maybe not prepared to give up animal-based proteins entirely is to, to look just at the portion sizes of those. And as you said, you know, only eat what you actually need for sort of optimal recovery and everything rather than yeah, as you said, in Western societies, often we have these massive big steaks or chicken breasts or something. We don't actually need all of that in terms of getting the optimal amount of protein from a recovery point of view, particularly in a single meal. So we can, yeah, if nothing else, even just cut down those portion sizes is going to make a substantial difference. The other thing that we see, certainly here in Australia, I'm not sure how much you get it in other countries, is I'm going to say game meat for a lack of a better term. Like in Australia, we you know, some some people eat kangaroo, for example, which obviously isn't farmed, isn't fed in the same way that cattle and things are, doesn't burp and fart out methane and that kind of thing. And so probably has less impact, probably not no impact because there's still a, you know, a processing component there as well, um, but probably less impact as well. And so, yeah, mm. even within those plant pro, uh, sorry, the animal-based proteins, there's going to be choices that are, that are more or less impactful regardless of the portion size. No, no, that's a great point. And I used to, uh, yeah, I kind of miss my uh, kangaroo steaks uh, from when I was down there. Although, yeah, I guess I wouldn't <laughs> be eating them up here. But I don't know if they do. do they do vegan kangaroo steaks um, or plant-based kangaroo steaks. <laughs> <laughs> but that, no, that's a great point because also how we eat protein is is seems to be quite widely misunderstood as well, or or, the, or at least the optimal way to eat protein. Yeah, there's a tendency, isn't there, to maybe not eat much all day and then have a big steak at dinner. Which I mean, there's got to be an, an enjoyment angle as well. But but actually, for an athlete, that probably isn't the great way to do it. And then also that hints at the food waste angle, which is if we're throwing food away, I forget the overall, the horrifying overall figure for food waste, but it, it, it's just epic food waste on the planet. Mm. And when I, when I started reading that, I thought, oh yeah, well, supermarkets, farms, they must waste stuff. But actually that's not, that's not the real end of the problem because of course that costs them money. Most of the food waste happens at home. I think it was 70% of the food waste happens at home. And, and when we throw food mm. out, that usually when it's essentially rotting, that's just releasing more methane. And methane, yeah, it, it, mm. for those who don't know, yeah, can be just so much worse than carbon dioxide, actually. It doesn't linger in the atmosphere as long, but it can be 20 to even 80 times more powerful, depending on how you calculate it. So methane can be, yeah, like, like far, work, far worse impacts, you, you could say. And that's partly why, yeah, the beef and the, and the, and the lamb is, is so bad. 
but yeah, food waste is another one. And and we're, you know, we're wasting money if we waste food as well. So it's that's one to think about. And so that definitely fits with the idea of yeah, yeah, smaller portion portions or spreading things out. Yeah. And the, another area I guess we could consider is more refined or processed versus less processed foods in terms of the energy and water cost and possibly waste in the refining process. So this can be a bit of a juggling act for athletes with, as you mentioned, very high training loads to be able to kind of get enough calories in without gut issues from a higher fibre content or just struggling simply to get in enough to support their health as well as their training. So did you find there was a period of adjustment for you in perhaps eating less refined or processed foods and going more to the plant-based protein sources, which are usually, I guess, pretty high in in fibre? Well, you and possibly other people are gonna gonna hate me for this, but no, no, <laughs> I, it was fine. <laughs> um, I've always, um, I don't know, I, I I didn't find, and it is interesting. I've got some other sort of friends who are elite runners who have gone like sort of mostly plant based, or you know, and, and they I've got several several of them who say they they feel the recovery is much better. Like I guess they mean fundamentally sort of muscle soreness and how quickly those muscles turn around. I must admit, I don't feel like I've noticed anything any difference now that might be that why I wasn't a huge sort of red meat eater before really I, I guess once or twice a week I, I I did like chicken I miss chicken a bit I'd probably have I don't know probably three helpings of significant helpings of meat a week probably but but one would be chicken one might be fish so I was already having I don't know I guess a semi-plant-based diet I suppose and it, I, I I know a lot of people have you know every meal is is meat and something so that's going to be yeah, that's probably going to be a bigger adjustment, both mentally and 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 maybe in the gut as well. So I must admit, I was starting from a, you know, I've always loved, I don't know, I'm always plunging my fist in sort of a big box of nuts and raisins. I've always enjoyed fruit. And, but well, actually, no, I'm telling a massive fib. My parents would say I haven't. No, when I was growing up, I, <laughs> I hated everything green. <laughs> but yeah, it was almost like a second, what do they call it? A second, like a, an awakening as a, when I was in my 30s, I was suddenly like, oh, green. Green stuff's tasty, actually. Like, yeah, I, I must admit, it hasn't. I haven't noticed a big adjustment either in both sort of yeah gut stuff and and, and, and a transition period, or or how I felt as an athlete. I it, it, I think I've just carried on roughly the same as far as I can tell. And what I've done actually is I've had fairly regular blood tests as I've adjusted because I didn't. There was always this sense of well, what if I suffer as an athlete? What if I'm yeah underperforming? would I stick with it? And and, and I guess I, I was undecided whether I would because you can still like massively reduce consumption without totally committing to to going all the way to being an annoying vegan. So I'd, I've had semi-regular blood tests maybe r- roughly every six months and actually they've been they've been fantastic. So I've been doing this, yeah, sort of two, two and a half years now. Slight vitamin D deficiency at one point, but you know, it, we're in Britain. It's, it's, we don't get the sun that you guys do. But yeah, so I upped my, I do take some supplements, but I, up, I upped my intake of vitamin D and that was solved. Now the aspect, I imagine you may be coming onto this, but the the aspect I still find difficult is getting getting enough protein in, or or being sure I am getting enough protein in. And I'm yeah, I don't really know if I am. I I sometimes I've got a good friend, Rini McGregor, who's a, a sports dietitian and an author here, and she every now and then I do like a food diary for her, and she'll sort of give me a bit of feedback. But she. Yeah, she thought I was not too far off with protein, but that's that's the trickier thing, having to think of it more. But it may be that I was under, you know, not getting enough protein in before as well. I don't, I don't, I don't totally know. Mm. So, uh, mm. yeah. 
Has it been something that you've really had to consciously be aware of in terms of like not becoming iron deficient or has that been fairly easy to manage? Well, funnily enough, I did have a slight or at least a ferritin deficiency in, in 2017 that was picked up in a blood test. And, and that's before I was vegan. And, and then since, since being vegan in my blood test, it hasn't, hasn't shown a, a deficiency. It might be because I'm a bit more conscious of it. And also, yeah, I didn't used to think about protein at all, really. I didn't used to kind of mm. consciously get protein in. Now I do. And, and yeah, I do several times a day. I think, have I got enough protein? What do I add to my dinner for protein? Whereas previously I didn't. So I don't know if I'm getting, yeah. And I don't really have, I guess, records. And that's the frustrating thing with blood tests. They're not really showing your, your protein, but they'll show, you know, a lot of other things. Mm. But yeah, I'm conscious of the protein intake through a normal day and, and thinking of different ways to get it in. Mm. And I guess if you think about where iron is going to come from in plant-based foods, I guess if you're conscious of the protein, the iron probably comes along for the ride to a large extent anyway. I'd hope so. Certainly. I mean, yeah, like my go-to snack is the sort of nuts and raisins. And, and then it's, yeah, trying to get leafy green vegetables. I am, I, I am taking a, an iron supplement temporarily at the moment. And that's partly because I've got a race at altitude coming up. I don't know if that's really going to matter, but, and of course you can overdo iron, can't you as well? And that can, that can affect you. So yeah, I'll, mm. I'll just keep doing these roughly six months blood tests and, and, and sort of follow, follow any in, in deficiencies that I spot there. Yeah. And so let's talk now about food packaging, especially for long training sessions or, or races where there's a need for food and fluids that is convenient. Minimise weight, space, and it's tolerated from a gut perspective. So what did you discover in this area from your research and how has your approach to this changed now for you personally? Yeah, have you kind of changed what you would take during long training runs or in your races? Well, yeah, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I, initially, plastic's very, I mean, it's sort of tangible and, you know, you can't see emissions, can you? You can't see the methane emissions, but you can see plastic. And, it, and it's quite emotive, isn't it? If you find some plastic on a hillside or out in the bush, you know, it's, it can be maybe upsetting, it's too strong, I don't know, but it is, it's, it's frustrating, isn't it, when you see it? So it's quite an emotive, mm. plastic's quite emotive. So initially, I went to plastic first as a kind of, right, I'm trying to be a more sustainable athlete. All right, I've cut out plastic, plastic waste at least. And as I say, I, I did this sort of record attempt on the Pennine Way, sort of three days of running, you know, a lot of food. And I tried to, yeah, tried to do plastic waste free. And I, I, I was probably, I was probably 98% there. I think in, the, the truth is one or two people gave me some food on a hill, which would have come from a plastic wrapper, you know, but otherwise, but to do that, I, I, I like, at one point I drove about six or seven miles, you know, to get mm -hmm. some crisps in a compostable packaging. But I was like, yeah, but I just drove six or seven miles and the emissions from that were probably worse than the but I still you know so it so it and then I bought yeah I bought a load of stuff locally in a petrol station shop and that petrol station was was you know it's owned by Shell they're one of the worst sort of fossil fuel polluters so it was you know again that's you know it just a bit complex ethically of like well actually is is trying to avoid all the plastic is that the best thing so it just wasn't as straightforward as I hoped and then I and then after that I yeah came along this research saying often the, the packaging isn't you know, isn't the bigger issue. And then around that time, I, I yeah, thought, well, I'm going to cut out meat and dairy. That's a bigger. So yeah, if you look at the, if you look at this study, uh, cutting out or down, down or out meat and dairy is going to have more impact than, than you, you know, more positive impact than, than sort of cutting out plastic. 
that said, I mean, I think most of us try and try and minimize plastic use, plastic waste, but it's so hard, isn't it? I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, even our clothes, this top mm. is plastic, you know, and plastic is oil. So fossil fuels, again, they're, they're just everywhere. You know, all our, you know, you go in the bathroom, uh, you know, nearly everything in there is, in, and in the kitchen, you know, all the, it's not just the bottles, it's, you know, oils and stuff, you know, fossil fuels are everywhere. So it's quite, it's quite depressing. <laughs> but yeah, so I think now, yeah, I still try and if there's an option I can buy without some plastic waste, I mean, often it's reuse, you know, reuse. Uh, there is a section of a book on recycle, which, which is frustratingly, yeah, just not, not the answer. You know, it's, it's often quite flawed, often just doesn't happen. But, but, and then you get to the stage of kind of, well, it's not, it's not my fault. I'm trying to do what I can. And, and why aren't these companies, you know, using better materials? being more ethical themselves and, and it's very frustrating and it can make you just want to almost give up and just sit there but hopefully mm. yeah hopefully people don't it's it's but it's it's kind of overwhelming if i'm honest it's yeah it, it's how deep we've got into this problem it is it's, it's quite it's quite depressing <laughs> <laughs> mm. i mean we talked a little bit about last week and and i know steph's you've used this quite a bit in in your own running and, and with athletes that you work with even just things like you can these days instead of single use packaged gels you can bulk buy gels and then reuse reusable flasks and things like that so at least yeah you're going to get some packaging along with that but you can hopefully cut it down pretty significantly by using those sort of approaches yeah no i can, I can mention a few good examples actually well i'm lucky one of my sponsors actually vela forte I, I don't know if they're available down there but they you can send the packaging back to them and they get it recycled so that's that's something and i was i must admit yeah. i was with a different sort of nutrition sponsor and they they kind of refused to do that or they wouldn't so i I, so i stopped working with them and went to a company that was more ethical we've got some companies doing compostable packaging uh you've got to be careful with the wording because you're biodegradable everything is biodegradable eventually so even plastic (laughs) but it takes hundreds of years so you you can still i don't know if legally you can but you can say something but you know um compostable is a bit different but then you've also got compostable like industrial level compostable and sort of back garden compostable so I do have, we do have compost going in our garden. So there is, yeah, another, yeah, some companies will do compostable, but for gels themselves, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a good sort of sustainable packaging option because it's, it's a liquid and it's, it's often seeps through, seeps through these mm. options. So it is hard. And I've got a little bit of sympathy there that, you know, a gel is, is actually a really good bit of sports nutrition. You know, there's a reason why they, they endure and why so many of us use them. They're good for a certain amount of time and there isn't yet a good solution for them, which is, which is a shame. But I guess that's one of those little compromises I'll make in a race. I will, I will have some, you know, I will have some gels because I want to, I want to do well. But I've learned, yeah, goo with the with the huge packets of gels that you can refill. So I've got some of these nice pouches, mini sort of reusable gel pouches where you, you buy a big packet. Yeah. So goo, goo, do them, and then also Active Root. I, again, I'm not totally sure you have them down there, but they sell like a powder, a big tub of powder, and you can do that. But I've got a friend who buys his own like fructose powder and, and multidextrin powders, I think, and mixes them, mm. you know, totally makes his own. And then I've got other friends, actually athletes of mine are experimenting with sort of honey and um, squash and, and, and dates. And But, you know, I'll be totally honest, I, ha- I haven't gone too far down that route. I mean, I've you know, we've only got so much time, haven't we? Well, that wasn't, mm. you know, I, I've got kids and, and uh, busy coaching people and stuff. Most, you know, a lot of us aren't going to spend that time doing that but yeah we can mm-hmm. there's things we can do but I, I i actually think yeah people are better off thinking about cutting out cutting cutting down or out red meat especially and dairy than, than the packaging but i think most of us 
most of us would like to buy less plastic, wouldn't we? And, and, and probably minimize it, I'd like to think. Yep. Okay. And I guess just to wrap up the, the nutrition side of things, and then we'll come on to those other aspects we mentioned off the top. I guess from a race organizer point of view, are there any things out there in terms of, I guess, how race organizers can make a difference in terms of reducing the environmental impact when they're providing food and fluids on courses for events, whether it's a road marathon or a, a trail race or something like that? Yeah, well, so this this Oxford University study estimated that, that for an individual, if they re removed meat and dairy, their footprint from food could be reduced by up to 74%. And I've seen a couple of bits of research now that it's the same for an event or, or around 70%. So if your event, it depends a lot on the size of the race, right? And how many hours and, and days an event is on for. But but if they, you know, if they were providing meat and dairy and they cut that out, they could have reduced their, their footprint from food by by around 70%. So that's that's pretty big. You know, it might it might it might annoy one or two runners, but I, I'd like to think if they explain explain why. And and hopefully a lot of people realize, you know, a lot of the some of the substitutes are really tasty. Not all of them. I can't really vouch for vegan cheese, which is sort of lightly flavored rubber usually. Yeah. But yeah, some of the meat, the, the the plant burgers, I think are fantastic now. And then the next one to think about is the waste, food waste. And that, yeah, I mean, that could be horrendous if you've got, you know, loads of leftover food and you just chuck it away. Um, here, I know some races give, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you have many sort of food banks in Australia, but, you know, to our, to our great shame yeah. here, we have, you know, we have food banks, you know, we're, we're a wealthy nation and yet we have to sort of, people have to almost beg for free food. Um, but yeah, I know one race certainly, you know, quickly goes to the food bank and, and gives all the leftover food. I don't know, you know, how many lollies and, and bottles of Coke and how healthy an option that is, but at least the food's not being wasted. So I think those are the two mm. big ones to think about. And then I suppose, yeah, then you do start thinking of the plastic, right, as well. And, and, and yeah, plastic bottles, like, especially when we do the road races in Britain, yeah, the amount of plastic bottles can be just horrifying. And I didn't realize before, mm. but it, those bottles have to be like properly emptied. Like if you chuck a half emptied bottle away, which, which hopefully people wouldn't do anyway, but but that can't be recycled until it's properly emptied apparently. And then there's some sort of hygienic thing where you're not meant to do that or something. So London Marathon have been trying to publicize this for a couple of years where it's like, if you're not going to drink the water, at least empty the bottle. But yeah, often you see, yeah, you, you kind of think, well, why couldn't there have been a... <sighs> you know, a big, a big, you know, yeah, oh, I forgot, I'm struggling for the word, but yeah, just a big barrel of water rather than individual tiny little bottles. Mm. Sometimes they're just minuscule and it's that's, that's, yeah. Although we've hopefully understood better plastics role in the scheme of things. I mean, in races, it could be, could be pretty horrendous. So I would think yeah. about those, those three issues. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, and I'm not sure if it's continued or not, the London Marathon, I think, introduced these like, edible orbs of water or something in place of seaweed, cups actually, or yeah. bottles yeah any idea how that went down and whether it's continued or not i forget whether it was used this year or not but i do know the the sustainability sort of consultant for london was was i interviewed her in my book and yeah it's a bit mixed sometimes people are a bit confused by things like that and and sometimes the education you, you've got to explain why to people there was another race here in, in the uk that said, well, we're not going to provide water bottles, you know, and, and there was sort of outrage because people thought, well, it could be hot and we can't, we can't run, we need water. But when they, once they explained, it was, this was called the Royal Parks, which is quite a big, quite a big sort of, I think it's a 10K race in London. 
but but a lot of people do it. You know, once they explained, people were 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 more accepting. But yeah, it's a bit mixed. It's a bit mixed. But if we get into events, participant travel is usually the biggest aspect, actually. Uh, and some, I would say, with London Marathon, they've been a bit guilty of, you know, celebrating sort of you know reduced plastic use, which which is good. But actually, their biggest thing is is usually all the elite runners flying in. That's much worse than these little plastic than these plastic bottles, and they're not really confronting that, or at least publicly. So, you know, that's what's complex and frustrating about a lot of this stuff is often it's the more obvious visual things that are obviously le- are sometimes less less of an impact than these sort of invisible emissions that are, that are far worse. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. frustrating. Yeah. And that, that's probably a nice segue. You know, we mentioned earlier that there was those kind of three main areas that runners can look at to reduce their individual impact on the environment. Obviously, food and nutrition is one. Clothing and equipment is another one and travel is another. So let's touch on those last two briefly before we finish up. Um, let's start off maybe with the travel since you've just been talking about it. And I know... Yeah, and Steph, you'll know this as well. You know, it's not just the professionals necessarily that fly in from overseas to attend races like London Marathon. You know, we have people coming from Australia to do it as a bit of a, you know, holiday destination race and things like that as well. What did you find when you you looked into the the travel side of things and the impact that it has on the environment? Because obviously, this is one that you know, a lot of runners, cyclists, and triathletes will, you know, have that dream race overseas that they want to go to or well, some of them maybe two or three a year in in some cases where they're they're flying in and out some of them professional athletes and it's their job but others are doing it just because they love the sport what did you find when you looked into that well yeah again surprisingly horrifying i guess the 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 best example i had was was actually yeah the paris marathon which is probably probably similar to any big city marathon so the emissions from that event the equivalent to giving birth to over 30 people and, and their entire lifetimes. So each time one of these big races mm. happens, it's almost like another 30, I think it's 34 people are, are born and their, their life, lifetime emissions. So that was quite horrifying, actually, when you think of it like that. And most and the big section of those emissions is, is, is the travel. And as I think most people would guess, you know, if, if people fly, then that, that's you know, more emissions, that's, that's worse. And yet if you can swap you know, if you could swap the flight for a, a train journey or public transport, it's massively reduced, much better. Even actually car sharing is is really good. A train is a fairly low carbon way to travel. But if you get four people in the car, that's about the same as a train, actually. So that's that's actually pretty good. So it's, it's kind of legitimate to drive to a race with your mates. One person in a car is, is probably the second worst, in most scenarios, second worst way to travel, depending on, you know, all sorts of little variables. I, I found like most people didn't know that. Yeah, when you think of events, it's it's sort of maybe the all the excess T-shirts and medals that maybe people don't necessarily want, and then the sort of plastic bottles. But actually, that was a small a small aspect. It's the, it's the travel, and then from an athlete's point of view, yeah, it's it's kind of how often, yeah, how how often will you fly or travel? Now it's harder, you know, it's harder for people in Australia and, and perhaps New Zealand. I, I I think in the book, or at least I meant I didn't want to sort of point fingers or be too preachy. And I've done lots of flights in the past. I've, I've, you know, I've done the Marathon de Sable. I've, I've, I've flown not, not exactly all around the world, but you know, around Europe a lot in the past. And, and when I realised how bad that was, yeah, I've changed my behaviour a lot. So I've gone, I suppose, from from an average of three, three flights a year to sort of one, one in four years. And what I did, I personally, I was like, so, well, what are the races I really, really want to do? What are the ones that really matter to me? And I, I, I guess I scratched several off that list. And I thought it's not for me. It's not worth it. But the Barclay Marathons was. Yeah, top of the list was the absolute one I wanted to do. So, 
I think people, yeah, and for most runners, probably their travel is the biggest, probably the biggest aspect. So it's what I ask myself now is sort of how important is that event? How much do I, you know, what's it worth to me? Is it really worth it? And, and yeah, one or two times, I think it's okay to say, yeah, I've wanted to do this one for years. And, and what, you know, I don't have to give up all my dreams. And, and you know, my footprint's still fairly small compared to a lot of people. So I, I, I don't think people have to, you know, stop, stop living altogether. But, and then it's like, what's the best way, if, you, if it matters to you, what's the best way you can travel there? So a lot of the times in Europe anyway, there's often a train journey, uh, which would, it's, that's a lot better environmentally, um, but often it takes more time and takes more money. So it's not possible to everyone. So I, I guess this ties back to, yeah, I don't think people should beat themselves up too much for their individual actions. It, you know, I would almost say, all right, if you flow twice in a year, well, my best way I think the best way to offset that would be to get involved in some climate protests rather than, you know, you know, offsetting with buying trees is a whole nother debate and, but, but isn't as satisfactory a way as, as yeah, do something nudge for system change. I would say, I think, I think that's to me, that's the best way to offset something. Yeah. And then it's thirdly, yeah. So yeah. Can you travel there better? And thirdly sort of, can you, yeah. Can you make more of the trip staying longer? And this comes from Mike Berners-Lee. This, this sounds a bit trivial, but yeah, staying longer. Can you combine it with, I don't know, visiting friend or family? Any work? Is there any work you could do while you're there? The, the more you can make from the trip, that, that's sort of fewer emissions ultimately. Yeah, I mean, it's almost making, you know, the concept of flights these days because they are so cheap and particularly pre-COVID. I mean, it's been gone up a little bit in price since then, but, you know, it's almost like a disposable item to, to some degree and I remember thinking back to you know when my dad was a kid like his his dad uh, was a teacher and he went on exchange and taught in Scotland and you know back in those days it was a three-week boat journey to get there you couldn't fly yeah. you know this is the sort of early to mid 1950s and so you had to make a stay of it because it takes so long to get there you're not just gonna do a marathon one day turn around and get back on the boat again for another three weeks you've got to make the most of the opportunity while you're there and so i guess it's you know thinking about flights as something that's not just this disposable thing that we can just do every other weekend do it once and it's it's done and then do the next one again but it's it's part of as you said a, a bigger adventure or journey or trip or whatever it is yeah no i think so we've almost got to go back in time a bit and and, and think a bit more like that and, and and that ties in neatly actually with with our kit yeah you know repairing kit and making it last longer is probably going to be the solution there and buying buying less kit and unfortunately yeah that whole chap chapter or maybe two chapters in my book i it was really depressing that was the most depressing stuff was the was the sportswear partly because of the greenwashing as well where a lot of brands are sort of well we've used a bit of recycled plastic in the shoe but we're going to make you know thousands more of this shoe it's actually the overconsumption that's the problem and definitely the bigger brands who are sort of, you know, yeah, celebrating, yeah, the tiny bits of material changes or something that really isn't, really doesn't matter. And, and really durability as well. You know, if some brands, are, you know, they're using sugarcane or mushroom to make a shoe and that sounds lovely, doesn't it? But if that shoe only lasts 100 miles, that's no good because you need more emissions to create the next shoe. And, and, that, and also, though, yeah, that shoe, at the moment, those, none of those shoes are properly sort of recyclable and it can, you know, take up 200 years to, to biodegrade. And it was stunning, the, the amount of trainers. So the trainer industry, here's a, here's a fact I do actually remember from the book, it, it is roughly the equivalent in emissions to the entire United Kingdom, the, the global trainer industry, not just like running shoes, but all the trainers, mm. it, you know, emits around the same as the United Kingdom, which is which is stunning, really. And then all those shoes, you know, we, we and those brands tell us to chuck them out after 300 miles, you know, so we can be getting through shoes every, every few months and, and just chucking them out 
So really, we need to really we need to buy you know yeah buy shoes that we hope will last, help make them last. I couldn't actually find any study that links our shoes to injury. So me and some friends are getting a bit competitive now of almost how long can we make shoes last. But yeah, most of mine are lasting well <laughs> well beyond a thousand miles. Um, uh, so it's yeah making things last, but also yeah these companies have got to stop bullshitting us, bullshitting us really. And and you know and, and only one company has said they will sort of make less. I appreciate there's a business element and, and I'm not an economist and it's hard for a company to sort of say, right, we're going to make fewer things, but you know, that's, that may be the solution. That, that's one of the solutions. But if they make a few good items that really last, that people value, you know, more people are going to come to that company and go, hold on, they're, they're doing, they're making good stuff that lasts. They seem to care. But yeah, the sportswear, yeah, it's, it's really sad. Actually. I mean, even in the cotton industry, I know we don't run in cotton, but often race t-shirts are cotton. But you know, there's still child labour, there's still slave labour, there's pollution, horrendous pollution that as, as things are produced. So yeah, it was properly depressing the, the sportswear stuff. But ultimately, I think mm. yeah, it, it's buying less and, and making our stuff last last longer, which isn't isn't a very sexy mm. message, really, is it? But yeah, but as I think you said in the book, and like I found myself, like the the tops that are basically made from plastic, they last pretty much yeah. forever unless you've snagged it on a tree or something, and they start to tear apart i've i've got some that have lasted 15 years and they're still going mm. strong yeah i mean yeah. that's kind of the irony of the situation we're in where, whereas you know they're made from fossil fuels but plastic you know plastic is actually pretty durable as long as you're using it plastic's actually great it's, it's when you throw it away that, mm. that is the problem and the overconsumption element as well but yeah 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 all right and you've, you've already alluded to it you know several times already but i guess it's that role of individuals versus systems in terms of the the influence on the environment so i guess if we as runners cyclists triathletes sort of make that effort of reducing air travel to events prolonging the life of our gear as much as we can keeping our animal-based food choices to sort of the minimum that we that we can get away with i guess how much impact can we really hope to make in the grand scheme of things with those changes versus as you said trying to nudge the system yeah it's a great it's a great question and and in truth in truth i don't i don't totally know but but for example i mean you've partly got me on your podcast because i've made a personal choice you know to to, to sort of cut out meat and dairy I th i do believe in that sort of you know, snowball effect where, you know, you, you, and, and I've been influenced by one or two friends, actually a good friend who lives in Perth, actually, when I was in Australia, he, he was an environmentalist sort of before his time. And I kind of, well, I would sort of tease him a bit, actually, and kind of, sort of oh, you know, banging on about that again. And then over time, I'm like, actually, he was, he was right. This stuff is, is serious and, and we need to, we need to do things about it. So I think, yeah, I think it can have an influence, your personal changes, especially if you tell other people about them. It doesn't have to be too sort of, in your face or too annoying but i there's definitely studies of so on my on my road now there are three there are three evs electric vehicles which reminds me of a study that showed like people are much more likely to buy solar panels when there's already solar panels on their street i can't remember how much more likely but it, you know there was a study on that so those things we are influenced by people around us and 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 so those stuff can have wider impact i would say that's more important than you know the actual emissions i've saved myself personally they you know, ultimately, they probably don't really matter in the nicest possible way. But but the message or mm. talking about it to other people, that can be important. But I would still say, you know, voting, getting involved in protest, nudging, nudging for system change. To me, that's more important. But one of the, but what, you know, just talking about stuff is part of that. And in fact, one of my favorite climate scientists, excellently named Canadian Catherine Hayhoe, 
that's what she says. <laughs> Everyone should talk about it. The number one thing to do, because she says, especially research in America and Britain shows that people care, but don't know what to do. And, and, and yeah, talking about choices you've made or, or, or thing or local issues or those sorts of things, or, or, you know, or voting, you know, can have more influence than, than we realize. And I've had lots of examples of that, which is, yeah, I think, I think that can, I think that's gonna, I feel like that's important. I think that's worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other kind of simple or practical things that listeners can do to try and exert influence on the system at large without, as you sort of talk about in the book, you know, having to glue themselves to a plane or get arrested or something like that? Actually, before you finish that sentence, two things did jump into mind, which were more personal footprint things, actually. But there are two things that are quite easy, but could be really significant. And one is, yeah, switching your home to a renewable energy supplier, because your home, this is not running really, but a quarter of your overall footprint will be from your ho- your energy for your home, uh, and if that's from mm-hmm. the wind or the sun rather than you know gas or coal, then that's 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 a huge change. And the other one is your money. If you've got a pension or your bank account, obviously I'm not as quite as in touch with what's happening in Australia, but in Britain, for example, I was banking with Barclays Bank, and they're one of the worst in, in financing fossil fuel development. So I, I it took me a while to pluck up the courage because I thought it would be messy, but it was really straightforward. I moved to Triodos Bank. So much, much more ethical. And that that could have huge impact, especially with people's pension funds. I don't personally have a pension, but but for other people, that can be that's seen as one of the biggest things we can do, which is hopefully quite quick and easy. But that yeah, but they're again they're personal footprint changes, but you know, tell a tell a friend, they may do the same, they might tell another friend. Yeah, but in terms of nudging the system, it is a bit vague and it is a bit daunting. I must admit, almost personal footprint footprint changes can be a bit more comforting and a bit more quantitative. We can sort of measure them and think, well, I used to do that and I don't do that. And that's a bit more satisfying in a way. But but one thing to remember is that this idea came from BP, British Pet, British Petroleum, uh, the idea of that individuals have footprints and, and we should calculate them and, and reduce them. That, that came from BP um, because, of course, they don't want us, um, uh, you know, looking at them too much. So in terms of other things you can do, I would say the number one thing is yeah, general elections. You know, vote vote for the the, the party with the you know the most environmentally progressive policies. But yeah, they don't happen often. Here we have yeah local elections regularly. I would say yeah, try and engage with your local local political representative over email. And if they're not responding, you know, do that over social media, do it over Twitter because that that does have impact. I've heard from people. You know, they are they are brands anyway are, are worried. You know, a bad PR. You know, if, if someone is banging on on Twitter that that, that you know this brand should improve that will likely get listened to. So I would say start off, you know, I'm not an expert in how to do this exactly, but I would say start off politely. But if it's if you're not getting listened to, we can be more, I think, you know, it's too late in the day to, to carry on being polite if, if people, brands, aren't, brands aren't responding. I think I would kind of, yeah, I would start by looking around you, like your own running club, local events, the brands that you like, are, are they, do they have a sustainability policy is, is one of the classic ones. Stunningly, some still don't, you know, just go on the website, is the word sustainable or sustainability on there? And, and even then, is it greenwashing? Now that is hard. That's probably another debate. Like that's hard. It is hard to tell sometimes. But yeah, I would look for those things. Yeah, I would almost start with you know start with the things around you and start pushing. Workplace is another one. You know, is there a sustainability policy? Could they switch to renewable energy? You know, where's where's what's the money doing? Type stuff. I would say come and join the Green Runners. Me and me and a group of friends joined, formed the Green Runners just over a year ago. But it's, it's become a global thing. We've got we've got members all around the world, uh, including in Australia. Costs almost costs almost nothing. Just, just a tiny bit for a, a, a nice badge, and we we just ask people to sort of make a pledge to improve 
on our four pillars, but one of them is speaking out. And to me, that's the most important one. Yeah, join, I mean, down there when I was in Australia, I was a big, I love the, the Wilderness Society. I think join, join groups like mm -hmm. that, join Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. You know, the more the more people join these these organizations that are really doing the right thing, you know, gives them more power. So, yeah, hopefully there's a, enough ideas there. But I, I appreciate it. It is vaguer and a bit more intimidating, but I, I feel like that's the way the way to go. Yeah. OK. Now, the, the first chapter of the book starts off on a fairly pessimistic tone. It's titled How Bad is Running? But by the final chapter, you finish on a much more optimistic note. And the title of the last chapter is How Good is Running? So it's been almost a year now since the book was first published. So I'm sure you've had a lot more thinking time and a lot more conversations with people since the book's been published. Where do you kind of sit on that sort of spectrum of optimism versus pessimism now compared to when you started this journey? Yeah, so I guess as I started to understand the the sort of footprint from running and, and my my complicity in that, yeah, I was getting pretty gloomy, and a lot of the book is 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 quite gloomy, especially the sportswear stuff. But then, as I as I journeyed further and spoke to more people, I suppose I was finding inspiring people, sometimes occasionally inspiring brands or inspiring events that were that were you know going above and beyond to to be more sustainable, to 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 spread messages. And by the end, I felt I don't know if optimistic is the word, but but less pessimistic. <laughs> and 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 we've got to remember, sport is incredibly powerful. You know, almost everyone is so, is a sports fan of some type. And what I they, I only discovered this after the book actually, but I'm a member of a group in America called Eco Athletes, and and I was chatting to the guy who founded them, and he showed me some research that sports people are the most influential people, more so than politicians or actors or or, or musicians, according to this study, which was both kind of terrifying, but also you know quite empowering. You know, we most of us are like I say are into sport, and, and we have some respect for those people. So sport can is a huge platform for, for potential change. And we see, we are seeing it over here. We've had runners, I, I don't follow the sort of road and track scene so much, but we've had this very, this young runner took a really bold stand. She's called Innes Fitzgerald and she actually refused to fly to Australia a few months ago, actually, for, for, a, for a competition there. And that got, that got in all the papers. So that was her, her one decision, again, personal decision, but had much wider implications. And she's become, you know, sort of, yeah, a champion. She's joined the Green Runners as well. Killian Jornet, who hopefully you guys know of, is 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 doing doing quite a lot. Well, doing a lot. He's doing certainly more than me in various ways. And I was, in, yeah, I've been impressed with people like that. I've got a good friend, uh, Jim Mann. He started a company called Trees Not Tees, which you know to combat the t-shirt waste here. I don't think they're down in Australia yet, but they're in America now. It's just the idea instead of signing up for it getting a free t-shirt at the end of the race, you can tick a box and your that same bit of money goes to planting a tree. Now, you know, just tree mm -hmm. planting alone won't get us out of this mess, but, but you know, it means we can reduce the, the, the waste and runners can feel a bit better about that. So I, I, I started to find, and yeah, I mean, the, the brand Patagonia, you know, it's not clear cut. It's not clear cut that they're just great for the planet because they're making lots of stuff and, and that, you know, you could argue they're making more than they need to, but they are the best example of how, how a brand how an outdoor sports company can, they, they do, you know, they, they fund climate activism that, you know, that's, you know, that they're a good example of, of how we can do better and yeah, various mm. events as well. So I, I did, yeah, I came out of the book with some optimism and I've seen more since there are a lot, it feels like there's a lot of little organizations now. We got a little one in Britain called the champions for earth as well, who is some, some Olympic water sports people actually started it off, but you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're trying to educate other sports people and, and encourage and inform and empower them to sort of speak up more 
and it is happening. I know it's happening down in Australia. Is it the cricketer? Is it David? David, I'm going to say David Pocock, but I probably said that entirely wrong. But I know you've got a cricketer. Ex- oh, he's a rugby, ex-rugby player. Oh, sorry, he's now yeah. a politician. That, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, people like that, now that's not strictly from running, but from sport, you know, huge influence. So, yeah, I believe in, I believe in, yeah, people being, being influential and, and being able to, yeah, push, push for the change we need. All right, well, to finish off now, we're going to go to our bonus round. So I'm going to head over to Steph and she'll finish us off. Okay, so you spoke about, I think, your next race being at Altitude. What What's coming up for you? Yeah, I'm going to go back to the Tour de Gion in, in, in September, which is 330 kilometres in the Italian Alps. I am, yeah, I loved it. And, and, and it's quite easy to, to get there on public transport from where I live. So I'm quite, I'm quite lucky in that regard. So that's my, yeah, that's my big one. Um, excited about that. And favourite post-run snack or drink? Uh, yeah, it used to be dairy chocolate milk, I suppose, but I, I, I got into <laughs> oat milk. So, well, a good cup of tea and, and a probably oat, oat-based chocolate milk would go down would go down very nicely, yeah. And a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? Ooh, that's a good one. I've not had that on before. Uh, <laughs> I say Aussie rules, partly, you know, partly to please the crowd. But when I was down there, yeah, I used to follow it a bit. I, I went to watch St Kilda. I lived in Melbourne briefly. I went, the, the, the Saints were my team. So yeah, play a bit of Aussie <laughs> rules, but I don't think I'd last very long. I'm not very tall or, or very strong. So yeah, but it looks a lot of fun. Yeah. And sporting event that you're most looking forward to in 2023 in terms of watching or... Ah. Well, you've got the Women's World Cup, Women's Football World Cup in Australia, haven't you? Coming up quite soon. Yeah. I'm quite yeah. curious about that because England have a very good team. Unfortunately, I don't know what time your kickoffs are going to be, but they're probably not going to be super friendly to us. But yeah, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to keep an eye on that. I, I've enjoyed watching the women's game progress yeah. a lot lately. So yeah, I'm keen. I'm keen to watch that. Yeah. And do you live by any particular advice or motto? Oh, that's a good one. I, I try to live by, if, if in doubt, tell the truth. You know, yeah, I think that's served me well a few times. You know, when it's, it was tricky when you can't, you're not really sure whether to say something or not. I think usually it works out better if you're just honest. I'm not, yeah. Yeah, I'll stick with that one. Yeah, oh, and when, with it, good. when you're running, it's low mood, eat food. <laughs> good one. It's a good one. I haven't heard that one, but definitely <laughs> applicable. And, and for non-running as well, actually, yeah. 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 <laughs> Anytime. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Damien. It's been great to chat to you about this. Obviously, it's a, a topic, as we mentioned at the start of the last episode, it's one of those topics that people probably don't give a lot of thought about necessarily in terms of their food choices and the impact that that has on the environment. But particularly as athletes, you know, we tend to eat a lot of food, particularly if we have a low mood. So definitely one that's that's relevant to to everyone and hopefully answers might be a bit surprising to people but hopefully that sort of clarifies things a little bit and sort of peels back what can be potentially a bit of a complex or daunting topic and and have some sort of key take-home messages so thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck in the italian alps later in the year thanks so much guys it's been a yeah absolute pleasure thank you Awesome. Thank you very much to Damien Hall. I am going to hand it over to the wonderful Alan McCubbin to do a summary. 
All right. So our topic today was what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition? And there's multiple parts, I guess, when we talk about environmental impact that we need to consider. We discussed these last week with Alba. So these are things that we often talk about, things like greenhouse gas emissions, but other aspects of the environment are things that we maybe don't necessarily know or think about quite as much, things like land use, water use, and what's called eutrophication, which is the runoff of minerals like phosphorus and nitrogen into waterways and contaminating those. Um, as Damien went on his own journey to discover the environmental impact of his running, in terms of nutrition, I guess he reached pretty much the same conclusions as what we discussed with Alba in the last episode. So firstly, I guess he came in with that idea that the biggest impacts were going to be things like plastic use and single-use packaging, things like gels, uh, the sachets that you can buy single serves of you know, sports drink powder in and all these sorts of things. And although we can still reduce these through bulk package products that are made up in reusable containers, things like gel flasks, and that's usually a lot cheaper as well, that does have some environmental impact, but it's actually relatively small compared to some of the day-to-day nutrition choices that we make. And so I guess if we want to think about those, the biggest impacts on the environment that our food and our nutrition has are particularly around our protein sources. So I guess the main reason behind that is that producing animal proteins takes up a large amount of inputs, inputs in terms of land, inputs in terms of water, in terms of feed, etc., for those animals. And it produces a large amount of environmental outputs. So that CO2E and especially from methane output in those ruminant animals, because methane is such a potent greenhouse gas compared to carbon dioxide, it only takes a relatively small amount of methane to add up to a lot of CO2E. And so those ruminant animals, cows, goats, and sheep, they produce a lot of methane, comes out both ends of the gastrointestinal tract, and that has a large impact on our environment. Now, there are some some work underway. We didn't really discuss this in the episode, but here in Australia, actually, there's been some work using a, an extract from seaweed to actually reduce the methane output by over 90% in ruminant animals. But that is not a technology that's going to scale up to the extent and the speed that's required from a global warming perspective. So it's obviously great technology and it's going to be a great innovation into agriculture, but it's probably not going to be enough on its own that we can just consume you know, the same amount of red meat and things that we are at the moment if we want to reduce our environmental impact. The other thing that producing animal proteins tends to impact on particularly is the eutrophication of waterways as well. So I guess how do we get around that? Well, in the first instance, only consuming the amount of protein that we actually need at an individual meal or snack, so not over-consuming protein. So that's probably about 20 to 30 grams for most people, maybe slightly above that in very large people, you know, sort of 80 90 kilos plus, or, you know, possibly even less down to maybe 15 grams in in really small female athletes, you know, 45 to 55 kilos kind of mark. Uh, I guess as well as that, minimizing the consumption of animal protein sources as much as possible. And while there will be some concerns about this from a nutritional adequacy standpoint, it is certainly possible to meet all of your nutritional needs with the exception of vitamin B12 on a strict vegan diet. Uh, without the use of animal protein sources. But it does require some careful planning, and we've talked about that in previous episodes. So you can go back and have a listen to the episode around is plant-based better, for example. I think it's episode 22 off the top of my head, but I can't remember. I forgot to look that up beforehand. Um, But thinking about the other big impacts that our nutrition has on the environment, 
or the other things that we can do to improve that. One will be buying food in season. And as both Damien and Alba said, that's often more important than buying locally because buying locally out of season will actually require a lot of inputs in terms of electricity, water, etc., compared to, to buying things in season. And then the other big one is minimizing food waste because obviously you've you know, there's been a lot of inputs and outputs from an environmental point of view into producing that food and then we're just going to throw it away and so that's all been for nothing essentially so i guess i i was thinking about this afterwards and thinking about a term that you often get taught certainly here in australia i'm not sure the term is used as much overseas is kind of the three r's reduce reuse and recycle and i think that's really relevant here to our discussion about nutrition and the impact on the environment so i guess reduce in the first place is don't over purchase food don't buy food in greater quantities than you actually need because that's going to increase the risk of food waste down the track also it tends to result in overconsumption of food uh, more than we actually need the reuse aspect i guess that's thinking about how we can reuse food as leftovers rather than just going straight to food waste wherever possible and then recycle in terms of food would be more around the composting aspect and like we think with our waste you know going up the chain so we don't just throw everything in the compost bin and think job done the fact that we've had to compost a whole bunch of stuff because we've generated a whole bunch of food waste by buying food that we didn't need in the first place is still having a much bigger environmental impact yes composting is better than throwing it in the rubbish bin but its impact is much smaller than just not buying excessive food in the in the first instance now in damien's case he chose to go vegan but as he mentioned, that's not essential if we reduce but don't necessarily completely eliminate animal food sources. And if we buy and eat only what we need and minimise food waste, we can still have a pretty substantial impact on the environment by doing that. I guess other aspects that you might want to consider in terms of your personal environmental footprint as a runner, cyclist or triathlete is to think about some of the non-nutrition aspects as well. Air travel was certainly one that I was sort of vaguely aware of, but I think, you know, talking to Damien really brought that home to me, asking those uncomfortable questions like, you know, do you really need to fly halfway around the world for five days to run a six minute PB in the Berlin Marathon and say I'm a, you know, whatever runner rather than this time runner and if you do feel that yes you're compelled to fly halfway around the world to compete in a race then really making a trip of it and thinking of flights as valuable commodities and not single-use items that you fly halfway around the world for a couple of days and then fly back again and do the same in a couple of months time and you know when you get to the race can you car share or do other things that are going to minimize your environmental impact when you're there and I think he used the example of the Paris Marathon, where the environmental impact of the Paris Marathon was basically the same as another 30 people being born into the world and their entire lifetime worth of CO2E. So it's it's a big impact that we need to be aware of and, and be conscious of. And then the other one was clothing and equipment, which we didn't really go into much detail about, but it has a huge environmental impact in our sport. And Damien's written a whole chapter in his book about this and yeah, I guess asking those questions like, do you really need that race t-shirt? Do you really need that finishes medal? Do you really need the latest Garmin when the old one still works perfectly well? You know, just because it's got one new feature or something like that, or it's, you know, 3% more accurate or whatever it is. Do we actually need that kind of stuff? Ultimately though, as Damien said, these changes will have a relatively small impact compared to system changes. And that's around you know, how we produce our electricity, how we 
go about our agriculture and all these sorts of things. So without getting political around this, you know, system changes happen when people demand change. And so where you invest your money, where you do your banking, who you vote for, and the messages that politicians receive from their constituents, people like us, do make a difference and probably have a bigger impact than personal changes that we can make. And these changes can be obviously a little bit more uncomfortable, um, a little bit more intangible, but ultimately probably have a, a bigger impact. Uh, and then finally, I guess if our, interests, our listeners are interested, they may like to check out the books that Damien mentioned by Mike Berners-Lee. So one of those books is called How About a Bananas? And there is an updated edition of that. And there is another book that he's written called There Is No Planet B. And he is an English professor at the Institute of Social Futures at Lancaster University in the UK. So if you want to find out more about Damien, the work that he's doing with the Green Runners, his book, We Can't Run Away From This, or some of the other things that he's written, or have a look at his social media, you can find out all of that information at his website, ultradamo.com, ultradamo.com. We'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. And you can have a look at his blog there. For example, he's written a great article about his experience at the Barclay Marathons this year, amongst other things. So yeah, you can get in touch with him there. Awesome. Good summary there, Al. And yeah, hopefully the listeners, you know, can take some messages home. And, you know, as Damien said, it's about kind of having this collective approach. And although, you know, doing these small things ourselves, if we do it all together, that will have some impact. And then just talking about it. So we've done a little bit here, Al, by by having it on the podcast. And yeah, I'm definitely going to go out and read some of those books that Damien talked about to, to get, you know, educate myself a bit more and see what I can do there. So next episode, Al, what are we going to talk about? Yeah, so our next episode is actually a follow-on from this one, episode 60. And Obviously, throughout this episode, and particularly the previous one with Alba, we talked about the fact that animal proteins are you know, more impactful on the environment compared to plant-based sources of protein. But a lot of listeners might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, don't all the sports nutrition guidelines emphasize the fact that animal proteins are superior to plant proteins from an impact in terms of recovery and, and nutritional adequacy for you know optimizing the, the benefits that we get from training and things like that? So are we going to be compromising our performance and recovery by trying to improve our environmental impact? Now, there's actually been some more recent research in this area just in the last two or three years which has kind of shifted the goalposts a little bit in this regard. So it's really good timing, I think, to, to have an investigation into this in a bit more detail. So we're going to be joined by Dr. Alastair Montaigne from the University of Exeter, who's been doing some of this research recently and using some new techniques in the lab and ability to measure the impact of not just isolated protein supplements, which is where that original message came from, but actually being able to look at whole meals and even patterns of eating over a few days rather than you know, an individual serving of a, a protein powder and the impact that has on muscles and the, the recovery from exercise. So it's going to be really great to have a look at that and see where that research is now at and, and what's changed over time. Yeah, awesome. Looking forward to this one for sure. And so just a, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, please do contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
we really appreciate it. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds when this episode finishes, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And those that leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it is published. And remember also that there's now 59 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you want to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And finally, if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you're not too sure, then you may like to refer them to our podcast and they can nag us about that particular question. As always, though, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple weeks' time. Yep, we'll do. See you then.